Today's podcast is brought to you by That's a Sun Pizza, a Bainbridge Island tradition since 1984. Owned and operated by the Grant family, they are the oldest restaurant on Bainbridge Island. Since day one, they've used a 120-year-old sourdough starter from the Klondike Gold Rush to make unique sourdough crusts that cannot be found anywhere else in the world. Each week, they make over 2,000 pounds of sourdough and shred 500 pounds of cheese. Are you hungry yet? Call them now. 206-842-2292 or order online at thatsasum.com. Blue Canary Auto. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz, that's .biz, or call 206-451-4220. Loaner vehicles available upon request. Eagle Harbor Insurance. Tom Sawyer, independent broker and owner of Eagle Harbor Insurance, works for you, not the insurance company. It is a one-stop shop for all your insurance needs. Portfolio services, home, auto, Umbrella, health, life, business, and travel insurance. Located conveniently on the waterfront in the Parfit Building at 175 Parfit Way Southeast. Call 206-842-7410 or visit them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Tell them that you heard it on The Bystander. Today's guest is Ted Jones, running for city council on Bainbridge Island. Welcome to the show, Ted. Uh, Good morning, Timothy. Thanks. Good to have you here. Um, Tell me a little bit um, about your family and how you arrived here on the island. Sure. I started working for the Navy back in 1981, and I was doing ocean engineering, and my first project brought me to Indian Island. And over the next 12 years, I probably had opportunities to come to uh, Puget Sound, once or twice a year. And every time I came home, I told my wife what a beautiful place it was. And uh, about 1992, that office uh, needed to move out of Washington, D.C., and I needed a new place to work. And I said, we're moving to Kitsap County. And without even ever having been here, my wife said yes. And we had two young children, and we moved first to Silverdale. We wanted to live in a neighborhood that had um, sidewalks and um a denser neighborhood because we just had young kids in strollers and we hadn't been here very long when we realized you know we could we could have uh, views and water and land and enjoy more of the great northwest and so in 97 we moved to uh, Bainbridge raised uh, both my boys here uh, they went to Bainbridge Island uh, public schools and now one is a environmental uh, activist in Seattle, and the other is a housing attorney in the South Bronx, helping tenants not get evicted. Shout out to the Bronx. Yeah. So did you feel that the public uh, school system here was of quality? 
Well, I really did. Um, my eldest son, uh, he went straight through uh Bainbridge High School, and uh, that got him to Wazoo, uh, where he, he thrived there. And Cooks. Exactly. And they beat Oregon. And um, my other son, he uh, went through the high school a bit and then uh, went to Running Start. And th- that was also a fantastic opportunity for him. And uh, he, over in uh, Seattle Central College, uh, he, he learned a lot, and that took him to the University of Oregon. Um, what kind of things do you enjoy on the island, Ted? Um, do you go hiking at all? Yeah, I hike. Uh, my wife is an active member of Washington Trails Association, and she hikes more than I do. Uh, but we, we do hike a lot. Um, I, uh, I'm i also a uh, garage band rock and roll musician. And that takes me off the island, but I, that's one of my uh, spare time That's a great hobby. Avocations. What instrument? I'm a lead guitarist. Lead guitarist. That I wouldn't mean, expect anything else from you. Yeah, that means that means I won't follow the rules. I I put my head down and I solo until I'm done. There are no rules. There's only guidelines. Um, do you have a favorite trail or walking path on the island? On the island, uh, we like to go down, uh, start in Fort Ward, and take that over across uh, the hill and come out at the cemetery and at uh, at the harbor. Uh, don't know the names of all of it, but that's the one we tend to walk the most. And then, of course, in our immediate neighborhood, we've got the uh, Skyda. Um, what do you call that trail? The one that goes from uh, Miller to uh, Battle Point, and then Battle Point's also right in our neighborhood. Okay. Um, do you guys kayak or yep. hit the beach, anything like that? Uh, about once a uh, summer, I foolishly jump into uh, the water somewhere off the island, but we also like to go over to Hood Canal and swim or out to eastern Washington. And do the plunge? Yeah, um, not the New Year's Day one. That's that's a little startling for me. What is the history of, of all that? I have no idea. It sounds like a crazy idea, and no, I won't do it. And no, you can't get me out there. Um, let's talk about a little, a little bit about what's going on on the island. You're knee-deep in the city council race. It seems to be one that a lot of people are actively participating in it. Um, you talk to people on the streets, they, they know what's going on, the mean streets of Bainbridge Island. Um, tell me a little bit about some of these topics. Um, how do you see the transparency of the government on Bainbridge Island? Um, there's a lot of talk about transparency, and I think there's a couple different opinions and, and movements going on. Um, one side of the transparency is People don't feel like they understand what the city has already decided to do, uh, either through projects that have been through the planning department or uh, through public works, and they seem to emerge as construction projects and everybody's surprised. And so that sort of transparency, uh, I'd like to talk about that one first. So the city government, as it shepherds a project, either its own project or a developer's project through the through the system, typically starts in the planning uh, maybe even in a committee, but if it's an outside project, it starts in the planning department and it gets through all its uh, negotiation and approval. And then eventually it goes to public works, which where it gets more negotiations and approvals. And then we may wait a season for something actually breaks ground. And I think the communication of that to the city through the website, through the newspaper, through public meetings is is lacking. Um, we're seeing it a lot in, in projects like the STO trail when, when suddenly all of the trees on 305 were cleared and everybody said, 
what is that? How did that happen? It was visually shocking. And it's not that there was any secret that all that was approved and it had been coming along for five years, but uh, it was so invisible that when I went to the first council meeting the week after the trees had been cleared, two or three of the councilmen said they weren't expecting it. So not only was the public not hearing about it, but as we change uh, the makeup of the board every two, the council every two years, they weren't even uh, apparently adequately informed that this was what the city government had committed to. So there's that aspect of it. And then another more grassroots aspect of transparency is what's being discussed these days about uh, the committee meetings and should they be open. Uh, we've got the Open Meetings Act of the state and that the city has volunteered that all of its task force and committees should comply with all of that. And so that's a, a discussion that came up in the council meeting just last week. And I think it's kind of unresolved. Uh, I see both sides of it. There's uh, the need for people to be able to hear what the committees are talking about. Yet there's also a need for committees to be able to work effectively and be able to have essentially subcommittees and talk to each other without having to be in public all the time. You want to be able to give uh, – if you've got 10 people working on behalf of something and you'd like to have something done before the next meeting, wouldn't you like to be able to say, three of you go work on this, three of you go work on that and come back and report? Well, under the Open Meeting Act, the three people can't just go off and work together. So there's a little push and shove there. I think that's going to work itself out. I, I think in the end for, for committee meetings, there needs to be a balance. Most of the meetings should be public. But if there's a reason uh, to meet in private, the emails that get, in, that get exchanged between the committee members are already uh, subject to the Public Records Act anyway, since they're all going to be on uh, city email accounts. You're uh, not going to pull a Hillary and no, do I, your personal email? I think that would be a... Uh, an obvious mistake. Yeah, especially on any board. Right. Board information should be dispersed. And I have some, board. some good personal experience in this. As a member of the uh, Utility Advisory Committee, all of our meetings are open and we take public uh, comment. And not a lot of the public comes. We have a couple people that show up uh, uh, religiously and, and always have something to say and, and we always listen and record that. And all our meetings are uh, recorded and Audio and video? Um, not video. Um, and then they're audio posted is where? I don't know where they're posted. Okay. I know uh, in my case, uh, the public works director, Barry Loveless, uh, presses play when we start a record. How's the city looking for resources for these projects and um, how financially stable is, is the city right now? I think... Um, Financial stability is at an all-time high. Uh, the city's bond rating is AA minus, which is one step away from being the best it can be, um, which is a reflection of the fact that the city has maintained adequate reserves in all the accounts that it needs to have reserves. All of the utilities are uh, have their own reserves and operate independently, even though they can loan money to each other very publicly. Um, so part of that's just a reflection of, of the state of the economy. Uh, back in 2010, um, the city had hit rock bottom after the uh, 
after the developer money stopped coming in. And an awful lot of the city's project money is dependent on developer impact fees. Um, that clearly there's been lots of development lately, so that, that helps prime the coffers. Speaking about development going forward, um, as, a, as a county, we have to absorb so much um, maturation of people and absorb some of that on, onto the island. Um, I look at the island being very green, beautiful. How are we going to deal with continuing um, development and where are we going to put more people on the island? It seems like we're constantly pushing out wildlife and there, like you said, there's a lot of construction going on as of late. Um, well, I think responsible uh, development is probably the clearest universal issue on the island. Nobody looks around and sees that some of the new developments and goes, ah, thank goodness we got another one of those. Um, and when you look at the reason we pe people have moved here, it's because of the, the clean air, the clean water, the open space. You know, Bainbridge Island has farmland that we've preserved. It has forest lands we've preserved. And the thought that everything that we haven't put in a park could get developed to full density is really repulsive to people. So we have to have a organized, planned, um, rigorous approach to what development we allow. The, and what do you, how do you see that plan shaping up? Is that uh, a dense model where something like the, the grow community or um, is it sprawl? Is it something that's going to infringe on these natural resources like the land trust, right. farmland? It, it absolutely has to not be sprawl. Um, the Growth Management Act um, mandates how much growth in each 25-year period that each city has to take. And because Bainbridge Island is a city, it has a quota. And I guess the comprehensive plan says that by 2025, we'll have 28,000 people here. And that's basically our target. When the city became an all-island city, we got words into the Growth Management Act that said we're not just a normal city, that it reflects the fact that we are both a rural and an urban center. Uh, can we revisit that? Can we get a better formula out of uh, Olympia to say how much we get? Yeah, I think that's a long-term thing we have to look at. But that's, that's not the whole plan for controlling growth. We have a brand-new comprehensive plan revision that took two and a half years to do uh, tens of thousands of volunteer hours. And it's a great reflection of the vision of what the people want the island to look like. The city staff has already started what they call the consistency review, which looks at the elements of the comp plan, whether they're utilities, transportation, uh, land use, and compares them to the current zoning and to the ordinance and says, these are out of whack. You know, you're allowing for more density here than you want. You're allowing for this kind of land use, but you don't want that. And one of the things that I would insist on as a council member is that Doug Schultz and the city staff bring us every, every meeting something from that list of things in, in the review and says these are zoning and ordinance changes you have to make to align with a comprehensive plan. Any chance we can just separate from the United States, knock down the bridge, and just become our own country? No. Earth flat around. <laughs> uh, round, round, and and one of us is, and, and is speeding up this through. 
Um, but you asked about the density as well. And uh, to conserve our resources, you want to have a dense core and keep our growth predominantly in the urban centers and not out in the rural land. Otherwise, it does become suburban sprawl. But that Central Island, like the Winslow area. Winslow, and in that's not the only growth center, but that's predominantly it because the other sub areas or resident um, neighborhood centers aren't really intended to attract high density uh, residential, but they may have some retail and, and business use in them. Yeah, like the mixed use at Pleasant Village, right? Exactly. Yeah, and that does have some higher density uh, residential with it, clearly. Zoning is complicated. But to say that I'm for having uh, concentrated our future growth in our urban core does that does not mean that I want it to grow high or dense. It, it needs to be consistent with the look of the island. We have a very charming Winslow, and our, urban, our other neighborhood centers are, are getting more charming. And that's what we have to preserve. We don't need to, uh, in the interest of concentrating growth and reducing our uh, our utility runs. We don't need to go to, you know, six, seven, eight-story buildings anywhere. Uh, we we don't want to be Bellevue. We don't want to, uh, you know, attract that sort of uh, city feeling. We want to stay small town. We, we want it to be somewhere where you can have the grand old fourth and and feel like you're you're still in a small town and there's a chance you can know everybody. When it comes to growth and um, affordable housing. Where does that fit into the long-term plans for Bainbridge Island and your visions? Okay. Affordable housing um, is a, is something we've dropped the ball on. Uh, we had a plan uh, back in 2008 that because of the recession, we just never enacted at all. The current zoning uh, demonstration project, HDDP, allows a developer to choose to provide either green housing or affordable housing in exchange for higher density. And in this market where green is a positive and everybody wants to buy green, in fact, they, there's prestige in buying green and there's also benefit to the buyer because a greenhouse costs less to run in the long run, the developer always chooses green. That's one of the things we need to change. And the brand new affordable housing task force is looking immediately at that. But we need a bunch of approaches to affordable housing. We need to... Uh, go for an inclusionary zoning that says that for any larger development, say 10 units or more, the details can all be worked out, but for any larger development that you have to include a certain number, say 20, 30, 40% that is affordable. And then the trick is to make that affordable housing stay affordable over time. So you have to get creative. You have to partner with Housing Resources Bainbridge and Kitsap Housing and the city's ability to uh, donate land or, or money or other concessions to make it all affordable. But you have to make sure that the houses, whether they're rental or buying, um, stay affordable or it's, or it's just it, it doesn't stay. Is there a way to separate green and affordable on these contracts to these construction companies? Well, I don't think green should even be uh, a choice. Um, the, the market wants green. People want green. We can get greener as well by consistently upping our building standards. Everywhere that's progressive is doing that. We should be going for uh, approaching lead standards. We should be increasing our insulation quotient. We should be um, 
controlling our uh, groundwater recharge from from our roofs, uh, all the water use on on, the, on a building site, all those codes are constantly being improved by the the global community, and we need to keep adopting the best ones. So the the zoning choice needs to be how do we get affordable into it, and if the goal is to get more affordable housing soon, and that. Affordable housing works best when it's close to transportation and jobs uh, and typically requires smaller houses and smaller land to keep it affordable in Bainbridge. We're talking about the core. There isn't that much land left that's going to be developed. So of the things that could develop in the next 10 years, if we don't put a high emphasis on making that affordable, we're going to miss the opportunity for Bainbridge Island. Yeah, and that has direct impact on on the workforce. It does, and keeping people here on the island um, yeah. to be part of that workforce. If you look at this workforce, uh, there's uh, after the morning rush hour and three o five clears from the ferry run, you see uh, the trucks and vans and um, coming in from outside the island for people to work in our stores, work in our businesses, work in, work in our homes, and work on our farms. And many of these people would like to live here, and they're clearly priced out of it, either from income or housing. And then we have you know, the people that work uh, in the institutions on the island, you know, whether it's schools or police or, or our own stores, that uh, uh, those workforces uh, – would love to be able to live here. That that's who we need to be including in our community. We need that economic diversity. Yeah, it's unfortunate that we, I know a few uh, policemen on the island, and a lot of them have to rent, and a couple of them come from off the island, and they've all said, as a policeman, their wage doesn't allow them to live here on the island, um, and it's tough when you have all these construction projects. You have these graduating classes from the high school, kids coming back from college. It's There's no incentive for a workforce of young people to continue to stay here on the island because if, when they're done with school and they have their college debt, um, there's not going to be necessarily a large amount of jobs to choose from to keep a workforce and, and continue to grow that workforce here on the island. You touched on transportation. Do you feel like we have enough bus routes? Absolutely not. Um, I work on submarine-based Bangor over on Hood Canal. And although I live on Battle Point and there's uh, four rush hour buses that come by my door and will stop for me, it takes me an hour and 45 minutes to get to work by bus because I, the buses are focused on getting people to the ferry. So it takes me from Tolo Road pretty quickly to the ferry terminal where I wait for another bus. It takes me off island to Paul's Bow where I change at a, at a large park and ride at a church and finally over to submarine base. The drive takes me 19 minutes. So what's the incentive for me to take that bus? Then between the morning and afternoon rushes, the, the buses kind of go away. The There's a BI ride system um, run by Kitsap Transit. This was a as I understand it, a request by the city and the city and Kitsap Transit partnered for it. It needs more advertising and it needs to increase. It's it's a good example of what we could do. Uh, the way it works, you call them and they give you a 10-minute window. They can pick you up and you may be the only person on the bus or you may be one of 10 and it's uh, 
it's basically a Kitsap Transit taxi service, which is one way to get people out of their cars during the day. But we need to have a big increase in Kitsap Transit buses and routes that go not just from uh, commuter routes to the ferry in Winslow. Unfortunately, the ferry is in Winslow. That helps a little bit. But needs to get people to the other neighborhood centers. If uh, you know, if you live in um, South Island and you need to go up to uh, a doctor's office that's uh, elsewhere on the island, that's hard to do by bus. For sure. I'd also like to see bus service that that helps get people in and out of the Winslow core to alleviate the parking problems down there, with more remote parking lots and. Uh, regularly scheduled bus, if you, if you say you lived in Linwood Center and you knew that every hour on the hour you could catch a bus into Winslow, wouldn't that be nice to not dr- drive and have to find a parking space there? How do you feel about a, a small rideshare program on the island? I think that's part of the solution. Um, ridesharing works for some and some people just won't touch it. Uh, that's because they can't all agree on the music that's going to be played. Yes. I was a. I drove the uh, uh, Kitsap Transit provided bus uh, for seven of us to go to the Navy Yard uh, for about six years, and we park did a park and ride. And we all met, and you're right. Agreeing on the the music was even harder than agreeing on the talk radio. It's hard to play your guitar while you drive too, right? Didn't stop me. <laughs> um, let's stay on bikes for a little bit. Sure. Um, do you think there's adequate representation for the bicyclists on this island? Do you think the bicyclists are respectful of the traffic laws? And lastly, is the bike bridge on 305 going to continue satisfying that culture? Well, that's three questions in one. So you might have to remind me one of them. So, Two so wheels, for, bicycle. So my transportation vision for the island um, – includes making the neighborhoods more bikeable and walkable. And some of the solutions overlap a lot. Uh, the Core 40 shoulder Yeah, talk about the Core 40. That's something that I just got hip to this week. Sure. Core 40 has been around in the non-motorized transportation plan for a decade. and Unbelievable. Yeah. And now under the uh, Multimodal Transportation Committee, it's, it's still being pushed. I'm happy to see that Squeaky Wheels has um, the bicycle advocacy group is publicizing this so heavily, and I was at the Linwood Taste of Linwood about three weeks ago, and I got my free Core Forty shirt, and it immediately made me popular. And Core Forty is fabulous. The program has never had any funding mechanism behind it. It has no uh, formal commitment by the city to execute it. It's just kind of being chipped away at, and they get. Uh, $250,000 every couple of years in grant money to try to do a piece of it. And that's never going to get it done. We'll be on uh, you know, core 10 before we're replacing. Um, and if you don't know what it means, it's 40 miles of the uh, most important circulatory roads for bicycles. Uh, so core 40 uh, hopefully will be revived uh in Technicolor with uh, uh, the, the bond proposal. There's a task force that's been asked to look at uh, imp- how do you raise sufficient money to, to enact Core 40 and a parking garage. And 
the question everybody's being asked, and I can answer it really clearly, is they should be separated. There's two different objectives entirely. Don't make people who want a parking garage vote for Core 40 and, and vice versa. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. And Core 40 will you know, win in a landslide. The goal there would be to pay to get it on, a, I believe, a five-year schedule to uh, to get that done. So that's a big piece of it. It would get connectivity from all four corners of the island, uh, help everybody get around. A lot of places, it's, it's a, a simple job to widen the relatively simple as anything involving drainage and moving dirt is. Um, relatively simple to increase the shoulder width. Other places, there's some serious choke points where we have to either go around the intersection or do something more dramatic at an intersection. So I'm all for the core 40. I think that's a really high priority and uh, we, we need to run with that. Uh, I think the second part of my question was, do you believe the bicyclists uh, fit in or merge with the traffic respectfully here on the island and the transportation system, like putting your bike on the buses and uh, going down to the ferry. And sometimes I see people coming off that ferry on the bicycles and it's just a flat out race. And it looks like the tour de force there coming at me um, off the ferry. And then sometimes I see people completely blowing signs thinking that, Hey, I'm late to the ferry. I'm on a bike. I have a different set of guidelines. Right. Um, I, uh, is that just me and my opinion of what I see the bicyclists doing on the island? Or yeah, yeah, that's just you. No, no, I'm kidding. There, of course, there are disagreements. I th think generally uh, the motorists uh, get out of the way of the bikes and, and vice versa. But every year or so, you hear about some horrible accident, um, which is almost always the uh, motorist's fault, and. I think the island is very conscious of it, and I don't think it'll ever be solved. The best way to solve it is to get them out of each other's way. Um, and the shoulders are just unacceptable the way they are. Uh, in my recent campaign video, I have a picture of the uh, shoulder along Miller Road, which is slated for improvement next year, but the fog line goes through a pile of gravel. And, if, and there's just walls of blackberries on one side and fast-moving or moving traffic on, on the other side. If you're on a bicycle, what's your choice? Be in the road or you can't ride the edge. You, you've got to be on the road. Uh, my next door neighbor for years has been a bicycle commuter from Battle Point. And um, I was thought I was respectful and I, I got my education. I tried to pass him on Tola Road about a half block from my house. And he uh -oh. he, he gave me you know, finger language and, vo and vocals telling me, you know, do not pass me on a hill because I'm putting his life at risk when I've got to cut him back off. And it's like, okay, I thought I was sensitive. I, guess I, I love bi bicycle road rage. <laughs> I, I wasn't Sh sensitive enough. And I, I realized I was wrong. I apologized. Shout out to Bicycle Bob, who is constantly telling people not to text and drive so is tapping so, on their windows yeah. as he rides alongside these slow moving vehicles yeah, get so off your phone is there room for education yeah and i think squeaky wheels does a good job of doing that i've seen the city put out some education on it as well but the core issue there overuse the word core the the uh, central issue there is that we're in each other's way and we need to uh, give the bicycles some some more space to safely get there people can we all just get along yeah Hey, you, you mentioned your video. That's tedjones.org? Yes, it is. 
go out and check that out for, for uh, Ted and get educated on that. Um, want to give a shout out to Chris Walker, my producer today, Steve Newton on the music, um, our sponsors, That's the Sun Pizza, Blue Canary Auto, and Eagle Harbor Insurance. What kind of job, Ted, um, is PSA doing for us? PSE? PSE, excuse me, yes. Um, do you think they're top-notch? Is there room for improvement? Are we working strongly together? Dramatic pause, wait for it. <laughs> it is. PSE coming down. Sure. Pipes right now. So PSE has been our service provider for 75 years, and they're a, a large corporation with a lot of good technology, a lot of good people in it. They um, they keep the lights on in general. Um, there's a lot of room for improvement. My first area for improvement with PSE is where do they get their power? And with the source of Coal Strip, Montana, and the, the four power plants there, they're some of the filthiest in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, tell, tell the people about that. PSE gets their energy, a portion of it correctly, from coal. Yes, um, I believe about 60% of what we get in, from our burning lights in, in, uh, on Bainbridge Island comes from the coal strip, Montana plants. And it's open pit, um, large area uh, coal mining, and there's four plants uh, dating from the 60s to the 80s and surrounded by large ponds of uh, coal ash, which are their own pollution nightmare in themselves. Sierra Club has been on them forever, as have most environmental action groups, to do something. And if we're trying to come anywhere close to the goals of the Paris Accord and reduce our greenhouse gases, uh, stopping gigantic uh, coal-burning uh, sources like that is, is imperative. I also think that we need to take that workforce from the coal and supplement new training into different types of energy. And while these people are changing their profession and learning new skill, we should be able to pay them for their time and train them in, in alternative energy methods. So about uh, two weeks ago, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, uh, Sierra Club and PSE announced a, a big uh, agreement. And on the surface of it, it sounds really good, and I'm very optimistic and hopeful for it, but it's, it's complicated. Uh, the coal strips plants one and two were already uh, planned to close in 2022. Coal strips. That's a long time out. It is. Uh, three and four were going to run till 2035 or 2045. And the agreement that they reached with Sierra Club and others, uh, including Washington and uh, Idaho, uh, Montana, um, has plants three and four shutting down in 2027. And that's that's a great improvement. And there's tens of millions of dollars also in there. And they say it's a combination of rate payer money and investor money to help retrain workers in Montana, which is another good thing because you have to have sympathy for a community that's been for generations providing this work. And now it's it's not fashionable. It's, yeah, I have empathy, but you can't see me right, right now, but I'm throwing up in my mouth. But from an economic standpoint, you look 
that an area like coal strip is a node for power to come out of. So if you can put other power generating sources there, I would prefer them all to be renewable. You put wind and solar, I mean, it's, it's in eastern Montana. We have both sun and wind there uh, and stem from that location. That's That's great. In the end, and part of the reason there's such an open debate on this is as they close those coal plants, the Utility Transportation Committee requires PSE to replace that energy in their portfolio with the cheapest energy. And we don't know what that is. But can we change that demand and and say, hey, the cheapest is not necessarily what suits our customers? So there's two uh, courts of opinion to use an enact inaccurate term there. There's the economic regulation and the UTC simply says that the electricity provider monopoly to have their franchise must meet all demand and it must do it at the cheapest cost. So when PSE goes to replace that coal burning capacity, they have to put out RFPs, requests for proposals, and they have to choose the cheapest provider of electricity. It may be what they want, which would be their own natural gas, because PSE is a huge natural gas provider, or it may be some mix of, of solar, wind, geothermal, whatever. So when you look at the integrated uh, resource plans, the IRPs that come out every two years, there's a range of outcomes for both uh, cost and uh, carbon footprint because you don't know what's going to be selected as the cheapest. The other court of opinion on this is everywhere else. So at the UTC meetings, which are all about the money uh, and regulating the uh, cost structure, uh, environmental activists show up and... It's fabulous. The more people pack into PSE Bellevue's headquarters and pack into the UTC meetings in Olympia, uh, and the more major representatives of the city and state and local governments like uh, all the other cities on Puget Sound, the more of them who show up and say that it's not about the money, it's about the greenhouse gases, uh, the more chance we get of getting a a better solution to that. So your question was about PSE. So... Question number one was, uh, you know, what's good and what's bad? Uh, the fuel mix is bad, and they, through, with this agreement with uh, Sierra Club, uh, I, they look like they're moving in the right direction on that. I'm cautiously optimistic. Through studying them, though, because I was a member of the Island Power Organization, we also looked at reliability and cost. And in general... Uh, If you look across the state where 62% of the people get their power from a public utility, the reliability is better among the uh, publicly owned electric utilities, and the cost is cheaper. There are exceptions, but um, on reliability in particular, within Puget Sound service area, Kitsap County is the least reliable, and within Kitsap County, Bainbridge Island is the least reliable. So there's... There's stuff they can do. I think since uh, Island Power started making such a stink, I think they've stepped up their game in providing reliability projects. We saw the Head of the Bay project uh, just this last uh, spring and summer, uh, putting undergrounding along Blakely. And I I think we'll see more of that. Yeah, people freak out on the island when the power goes out for a day or two or even an hour. I'm formulating an idea of catching squirrels and putting them in a wheel to power the energy here. So I had a meeting with uh, Andy Wappler and Shermilla Swenson uh, to uh, uh, 
Andy Wappler, you'll know, is the uh, yeah. Shout vi- out to Andy, vice president for corporate communications, and Sharmila had worked uh, uh, years before on uh, Repower Bainbridge, so she has a lot of familiarity with uh, Bainbridge uh, electric issues as well. And we talked a lot about reliability, and they had tried PSE had tried two or three times to bring us a project to connect the Murden Cove and Winslow substations, and within PSE's system. They have 300 substations, and only four of them are dead-end substations like those two. When you're designing any utility, you want a loop. And have a substation that only gets power from one direction is not a loop. So they want to connect those two stations. They've proposed projects in the past, and the city has turned them down. And generally because they've either wanted to cut too much trees or they wanted to bring power lines over schools and daycares, uh, which the parents didn't want to happen either. So I told Why aren't we burying the power it, lines? Well, that's what I told Andy. I, I said, Andy, if you want to win on it this time, bring me, bring us, but I was talking as a potential council member. I said, bring us a project that buries the entire route and it does it as a core 40 project, increasing the shoulder and the bike separation at the same time. You know, whether it's a cost share or whether they just uh, donate it, because apparently they have a lot of money to donate for PR projects. Um, if they free want t-shirts, uh, right? Uh, free solar roofs for for some institutions. Great thing. So if they want to be popular on the island, bring us that project that uh, gives us a core 40 route between those two substations. You hit a word solar. When I first moved here, there was a huge push towards um, solar power on Bainbridge mm-hmm. Island. I don't feel there's that huge push to- towards solar now. Why is that? Uh, I think it's, I put it on my roof. It's been on there about six years now. And when I put it on, the legislation in Olympia that made it so popular was was winding down. It uh, had a a sunset provision to it. So I knew when I calculated my solar roof that I'd get a payback of about six years. I chose the uh, to have all my components from Washington State, which gave me the biggest rebate, which helped. And But I knew if I hadn't done that in you know 2014 or 2015 that it was going to get less attractive. Well, they just renewed that law this year in Olympia. So I think there's going to be an increase in, in solar as a result of that. So as of... Now, do you have your money back from your inve- investment there? Um, no, I think I'm four years into a, a six-year payback. and but Happy it, with it? Very much. Uh, I come home even like on a January day, and it's, it's bitter cold, and I just see my meter spinning backwards. Beautiful. Let's take a quick break. I have this thing called the Fast Five where I'm just going to throw off five random questions to you, much like Earth being flat around. Um, you ready for it? Yes, I am. Fast five. Favorite dinosaur? T-Rex. Favorite quote? That a, um, that a sentence shall not end with a preposition is a proposition uh, up with I shall not put. Bam. Winston Churchill. Nice. Matchbox or Hot Wheel? Hot Wheel. Ken Doll or G.I. Joe? G.I. Joe. Favorite podcast? B.I. Stander. Right answer. One out of five. Excellent. Hey, um, when you go out to eat on the island, what's your favorite restaurant? Uh, Bruciato. Oh, yeah. We lived in Naples for three years uh, when I was 
doing a facilities work for the Navy. And Neapolitan pizza is the thing, and they've nailed it. Which one do you get? I get the prosciutto uh, and mushrooms. Yeah, put some arugula on that, please, mm-hmm. Brendan. Um, I love the octopus chickpea soup there. It's absolutely a winner. And great environment. Uh, I love the look of that place. Top-notch restaurant for sure. Um, you talked about clean water. Clean water as in drinking clean water or our ocean is clean? Well, um, both are obviously important. Um, clean water, um, we have clean drinking water on the island. You know, that's, we can thank our Department of Health and, um, and our utilities uh, f- for doing a good job on that. Uh, the question on the clean water on the island is uh, how are we going to recharge it? How are we going to sustain it? Uh, you know, with global warming, we're going to get sea level rising and our uh, beachfront wells will get more and more encroachment of, of salt water, which is a problem. And there's a drawdown of most of our shallow water aquifers around the island. If you ask Duckworth uh, Plumbing uh, Drilling, who's one of the two major uh, drillers on the island, this They'll tell you that most of their calls are about wells or to deepen them. But that isn't where we get the majority of our water. If you're on one of the uh, either the PUD system, a Kitsap PUD, or the city water, we generally are in deeper aquifers, which are uh, extend underneath uh, the deepest aquifer extends underneath Agate Passage and deep into Kitsap County and maybe to the Olympics. So there's lots of water uh, for drinking. And unfortunately, it's hard to make a good case as we'd hoped we had with the USGS study a couple years ago that we could tell the Growth Management Act officials that we're limited in our water supply. That's a hard case to make. But obviously, we still need to recharge our aquifers. We have to prevent it from becoming a, a dry zone. And there's a lot of great motion going on to uh, uh, up our code and do projects that generate more groundwater recharge, which we can also do down the road with our sewage effluent. So we have uh, a plant we run, and and Kitsap County runs a sewage plant on the island, and both of them meet their discharge permits into uh, Puget Sound, except for when there's a failure or a break, which is always embarrassing. Yeah, what happened with the sewage break on Bainbridge? Well, the pipe got too, the one I'm thinking of, the pipe just got too old. And uh, you bury a iron pipe in the beach, and you don't look at it, and eventually it's gone. Do we have a checks and balance system for our water system right now that so we don't have a Flint, Michigan type situation where the water's contaminated, the pipes are all rusting out? How do I know what's going on down down there? Um, you got the Department of Health, which is which helps. So for all of your um, systems over five people, they're, they're regulated to a degree. And if they get bigger still, then they get uh, water quality reports. Flint's a pretty special situation. Yeah. Um, we won't get to that. But um, Why does Kobe always flush the, the main drains? I, I see sections of streets where they're operating almost on a daily basis, flushing um, the water because the pipes are iron pipes and they build up a scale inside, which... Uh, Is that um, just a pressure system, like a fire hose going through there? Exactly. They of... just open open it up, and with that much cavitation and turbulence in the water, it, it knocks the stuff off the sides, and that helps... Cavitation, great word. Isn't that a great... Um, 
by flushing them, you prevent future breakdowns. You prevent uh, discoloration in your water. I mean, you may get it right afterwards, but you prevent. And it also is a good testing of the valves to make sure that they open and shut. Excellent. Um, what What do you enjoy about the quality of life on Bainbridge Island? What's the, the go-to thing that you wake up, you smell the fresh air, and go, I'm, I, I'm glad I live here because of? First was the air. Uh, I Me moved, too. moved from Washington, D.C., and I remember standing. It wasn't even on Bainbridge. It was on the top of Ridgetop and taking deep breaths and going, I don't smell Metro bus. Uh, just the air air quality is wonderful. I've come to absolutely love the pitter-patter of the rain and uh, just to step outside and just be lightly misted uh, for six months of the year. I think that's great. I've gotten over the darkness. It's dark when I go to work and dark when I come home, so who cares if it was dark? Um, I do. <laughs> um, the scenic beauty, you know, when you take the ferry and you see the, the Olympics and, and the, even the, the distant Rainier. wet city and, and the Rainier, it's, it's all beautiful. And, and then there's just the, the level of uh, community spirit and involvement of the citizenry um, that people love to get involved. The amount of peop- people who give humongous amounts of their free time to uh, work on committees and teams uh, for the betterment of the island is just, just amazing. Do you ever feel like there's too many cooks in the kitchen, though, and that too many people volunteer for boards without the adequate skills just – just to kind of compete with their neighbors and say that I'm giving back to the community too. I mean, there's so many things going on. The school clickathon, you know, everybody and their sister is asking you to donate here and there. And no, no, I think I think it's all wonderful. I think once you're on these committees and boards, uh, the workers and the the posers separate themselves pretty quick. Um, Let that be a warning to you posers out there. <laughs> um, you got any shout outs? You want to talk about anything in particular? Uh, mention anybody? Well, there's uh, so many great organizations as, as I've been um, campaigning and, and you know, trying to open my ear to people and, and have people open their ear to me. You know, you meet people like, uh, uh, well, there's the groups who endorse me, so I, I should shout back out to them. You know, climate, do it, do it. climate Action Bainbridge, you know, clearly one of the uh, most prestigious and effective uh, environmental organizations in the area. Uh, Quality Bainbridge. Um, I've had meetings with groups like uh, friend. Hold on, back up. Quality Bainbridge. Mm-hmm. What is that? They stand for finding uh, qualified uh, uh, candidates to run for public office and encouraging them, and then helping them get their message out. Okay. And what kind of platform do they use to get the messages out? Um, letters to the editor, their Facebook site. Um, this season, that's been primarily primarily their platform. Anybody else? Um, you know, friends of the farm, uh, zero waste. I mean, there's a, a selfless group. Yeah, it, Diane. Ev- every event you go to, you see people in their green vests uh, just standing there. And go, nope, that can please. And I think they had a great impact on the island with the, you know, encouraging other people to do like-minded stuff. You see garbage cans now that are separated right. into compost, recycle, glass, paper, and then that big word land. Fill. Yeah. So then you're thinking about a, a different decision with exactly all so the you, packaging that you just bought somewhere. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked this question because we talk a lot, and I get asked about the groups that directly feed the committee and uh, the council information. You know, whether it's the UAC that I'm on or the uh, 
non-motorized, uh, actually multimodal transportation committee or the historic preservation committee or the civil service commission, they're all feeding stuff more directly to the government. But there are these organizations that have just made the island famous, like the Bainbridge Island Land Trust. Um, you know, if ever there's a, a solution that you've got to be behind, it's a totally market-based uh, uh donation-driven uh, fund to snap up uh, important uh, ecological resources and keep them from getting developed. I mean, you got to like that. Then you got the group of Ometepe. Ometepe. You know, uh, I went to Nicaragua last year, and I think I'm the only person from the island who's been there that wasn't going to Ometepe. My brother had a place. Uh, but, you know, total uh, great partnership with a sister city, and both are benefiting. Uh, the barn itself... Um, you know, this this is a monument to what uh, uh, like-minded people can do in self-organizing. And I, I look at the opportunities that are here in the barn. But then I, I also, as a civil engineer, I look at uh, what care went into uh, making this place have a minimal impact on the environment from the uh, from the ponds and the native vegetation and the uh, the deep wells and the uh, the heating system that's uh, using ground source heat pump. Yeah, there was a lot of thought going into this studio and the outlying areas, and it is a great place to collaborate for sure. Um, I want to give a shout out to Mass, the multi-age um, soccer Sunday group that I'm missing here this morning. Go out to Battle Point. We used to call it Dads and Lads, where you'd take your child out there and play in a pickup soccer game at Battle Point. That's 10 to 12 every Sunday. Ted, I really appreciate you coming in on a Sunday. It's Seahawks Sunday, so go Hawks. Um, anything else before we head out of here? What's your next event? Next event is uh, tomorrow, uh, Monday night. Yeah, that would be tomorrow. Is uh, League of Women Voters uh, Forum at the uh, City Council. Okay, the one after that. Uh, I'm doing some uh, sign waving uh, down by the ferries in the middle of the week. Like, are you going to get all jacked up like the... The guy's saying, uh, store going out of oh, business. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to be... Get the uh, headphones out there, doing a little dance, doing a worm. Maybe. Maybe. Come down and see. Well, I'll be there. I appreciate your time, Ted Jones. Thank you very much. Thanks again to my sponsors, Eagle Harbor Insurance, That's the Sum Pizza, and Blue Canary. You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. We're out. <laughs>